Hey, I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to At Risk, brought to you by Interact. Whether they involve toddlers or nuclear power plants, meltdowns reveal so much about our dependencies, our vulnerabilities, and our character. This is in part why Emily St. John Mandel's two most recent novels draw us in so deeply and leave us thinking about them long after we've put them down. Station Eleven follows the survivors of a flu pandemic. It was a finalist for a National Book Award and the Penn Faulkner Award. It won the 2015 Arthur C. Clarke Award, the Toronto Book Award, and the Morning News Tournament of Books, and it's been translated into 31 languages. The Glass Hotel, a 2020 Giller Prize finalist, zeroes in on the choices of the perpetrators and victims of a Ponzi scheme. I hope you enjoy my and Emily's exploration of the risks we choose and the ones that choose us, both real and fictional. Thank you for joining me, Emily, and welcome to At Risk. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Emily, tell us, what draws you creatively to risk management failures, to meltdowns? Um, I think that I've developed a reputation as being this sort of disaster artist. Um, You know, I would say it kind of varies book by book. So the two books that come up in this, when this topic comes up are um, my two most recent, Station Eleven, which follows the aftermath of a catastrophic pandemic. And then The Glass Hotel, which is about um, economic collapse, essentially. And I would say with the first of those books, Station Eleven, really the project was that I wanted to write about a post-technological world. So it was less about wanting to write about a collapse and more about wanting to write about what the world is like 20 years later. But of course, if that's your premise, you've got to end the world somehow. So, you know, there is inevitably a disaster in there. Uh, But yeah, I would say that wasn't my primary interest. Uh, With The Glass Hotel, I guess I was more interested in writing about this catastrophic failure. I was really looking at the novel as historical fiction. I was fascinated by Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, which of course imploded in uh, December 2008. And although every character in the book is fictional, the central crime is more or less the same. So yeah, I was just really interested in in the fallout from that. Uh, What I will say, though, is kind of a general, almost more technical than creative note for fiction writing, is that if you can place your characters in the midst of a catastrophe, or as you might put it, a failure of risk management, that is an inherently dramatic situation, and it's really easy to launch a, a gripping plot out of that. So I see that as a reason why, why authors take that approach in general. In those challenging circumstances, when things you've relied on are no longer reliable, they bring out character, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, it's such a cliche to say there's no test of character like hardship, but it happens to be true. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you see that both in fiction and in life, I would say. The other thing I also thought about was, in many ways, The Glass Hotel and Station Eleven were about the risks of being an artist. Mm-hmm. The potential for violence, the risk of being forgotten, the financial risks... Right. Except for Paul. Paul in the Glass Hotel, against all odds, right, is the artist who finds his moment. What were you trying to say about the life of an artist? <laughs> right. So there's a lot to unpack there. Um, 
something that is hard to express without sounding really self-deprecating is that I think there's an incredible element of randomness in artistic success. Um, and, you know, I say that not to put down any of my own books. Uh, I, I, I absolutely stand behind them. But I'm aware at all times that there are any number of books published in the same year as Station Eleven and then The Glass Hotel, which were at least as good. Um, they just didn't sell as many copies and didn't get the same kind of recognition. And, you know, you really see that quite clearly in literary awards, where this probably goes without saying, but... You know, a different awards jury, which is to say a different a different five people, you know, it's always about five people for all of these juries. A different five people would have picked a completely different long list and a completely different short list and a completely different winner. So I don't know, I guess with having Paul be the one character who, um, you know, th there's no way of saying that he deserves it in any way. You know, there's no kind of moral component to it at all. He's kind of objectively awful, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you're right. He is the one who experiences artistic success. Uh, you know, I suppose it's some commentary on just the randomness of it. It's not the best person who's the most successful. It's not even the best artist. It's not always the most talented. It's the person whose work is in front of the right people at the right time. So there's just incredible luck involved in all of that. Mm -hmm. And then to go to the earlier part of your question about um, the uh, financial uh, perils, I suppose, of, of being an artist. You know, I went to school for contemporary dance, and that was a great preparation for being a writer. Because, you know, if you think that a writing career is precarious, <laughs> like, you know, um, if I blow out my knee, I'll still be a writer. But dancers can't always say the same thing. It's just a much, a much higher risk uh, career, I would mm -hmm. say. So, yeah, you know, I think that was really good preparation. And, you know, I think the reality is we'll all be forgotten. That's, uh, that's just kind of part of the human condition. And I think most artists will not make enough money to do art full time. And you just kind of have to, I think you just kind of have to accept that. Yeah. And of course, there's also the risk of being misinterpreted, right? There's not winning the prize and then there's your work getting misinterpreted into something that you didn't intend it to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I suppose the ultimate horror story in that regard is Nietzsche. And I'm, in, I'm by no means an expert on his work, but I think it was his sister who bent his work into this sort of horribly anti-Semitic interpretation that he never intended. So, you know, that's kind of a nightmare scenario. But the question of interpretation is kind of interesting because... I do sometimes read reviews of my work where the conclusion they drew is not actually necessarily what I intended. And I'm kind of fine with that. You know, I mean, so far it hasn't been some sort of like horrible Nietzschean, awful misinterpretation, <laughs> but you know, they got, you'll come across sentences like Mandel's project is clearly X. And I'm like, huh, okay, I, I guess I could see that. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think um, I think everyone kind of reads a different book because, of course, you bring your own experiences to it. Oh, absolutely. When I picked up Station Eleven because someone recommended it to me because they knew I'd worked at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, they were like, you must be into this. And I'm like, well, not in real life, but yes, for fiction. <laughs> You're like, not so much. <laughs> were you? you there during SARS? Yes, at the tail end of SARS and then through H1N1. Right, okay. 
it continues to be something that I think about quite a lot. But in addition, Station Eleven, when the lockdown first happened, I had two memories of that book that really kind of haunted me through the initial period. One was when the plane stopped flying. It it was a punch in the gut because it reminded me, of course, of Air Guardia. Right, okay. But the other thing, the more profound thing, and quite frankly, the the kind of concern that still haunts me to a certain extent to this day is everything happens pretty rapidly in Station Eleven. Uh, the Georgia flu rips through the population with such efficiency. And then civilization and all the services that go along with that, they slightly more slowly dropped off as the population dwindled. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes, in my you know darker, more fearful moments, I always ask myself, is this happening right now? Right. Like, as each business closes, are we not having a less rapid loss of civilization? Is it more like the Earth's orbit, where you don't realize you're spinning, but nevertheless, we're spinning and and we are losing things? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, there's something to that. I'm afraid that what we have culturally is this kind of drift toward, I guess what I would call monoculture, where, you know, the businesses that fail, they're the small businesses that maybe bring a little more creativity and nimbleness to the marketplace. And you're left with the Amazons, you know, the, uh, yeah, the the huge businesses that can survive this event and become your go-to store for literally everything. Um, So, yeah, there's a real... There's a real loss of this interestingness, you know, in the uh, in the retail world. It's kind of sad to see. Yeah, I think we will lose some of that diversity. Now, whether it comes back at another time or even better, who knows? Uh, we just have to live our lives and see what happens. Have you found it difficult to create during this period? I'm not sure what your particular lockdown situation is right now, but is it conducive to creating? Right, right. Um, My lockdown situation is incredibly fortunate. I feel hugely privileged. Um, So I'm in New York City, which is not necessarily a hugely privileged situation. Um, But so, uh, you know, we locked down pretty hard in early March. And at first, that was really difficult because our daughter at the time had recently turned four. And, you know, that's, that's an age that does not take easily to Zoom preschool, you know, to put it mildly. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, my husband and I were both, are, we're both able to do our jobs from home, which is an incredible privilege. And so we made it work. You know, we juggled back and forth. And then in the summer, we entered a pod with one other family, which I'm sure most people listening to this are familiar with the concept. But a pod, you know, it's basically a a closed group of people who agree uh, who agree on the risks that they're taking. So in our pod, we're never indoors with other people. And we, uh, you know, not like the grocery store, but like you wouldn't have friends over. Um, and we wear masks in public. So yeah, so we entered a pod with another family. Um, really, if I'm being honest, to share their nanny. It worked out really well for both of us. So 
yeah, Pog with one family and a shared nanny. And then uh, we invited a third family into the pod quite recently, which um, that family has a couple of kids around my daughter's age. So I, uh, I feel better about that, you know, just for socialization. So yeah, it's three families plus a shared nanny who lives alone and drives her own car to work. And it's fine. You know, I, I feel incredibly fortunate to have this set up. But, you know, to go to your to the earlier part of your question um, about whether it's been difficult to work, it was in the beginning. So the spring in New York City was just apocalyptic. It was crazy. Um, you know, we were all locked down. There was a period in early April when around 700 people were dying just in New York City every single day. So what that you know, the soundscape of that, that means constant ambulance sirens. So at any given moment, there was this feeling of, you know, it's not a question of whether I can hear a siren. It's how many sirens at the same time. And I found it really difficult to work in those conditions during those months. Um, but I think a sort of both great and awful uh, aspect of uh to call it of human nature is that you really can get used to anything. So, you know, it's uh, it's gotten easier. Um, also, the situation in New York has gotten much better. So, yeah, I had a hard time working in the spring, but by summer I was writing again. Yeah, that's one of the essential, um, I guess, tenets of risk that, you know, when something first comes, it's new and it's strange and our reactions to it um, are, you know, we're, we're kind of on high alert but with time, you know, almost anything we can kind of become, we just become less fearful of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cases are spiking in New York City. We're definitely in our second wave. And it's just much less scary because we know how to live under lockdown. So in terms of living in the United States, you wrote a really beautiful piece um, for the National Endowment for the Humanities um, about your book tour uh, with uh, Station Eleven as part of the Michigan Reads program. Um, and you talked about that there's sort of certain difficulties in adopting to life in the United States as a Canadian. Um, what, how, how, how have your thoughts on those difficulties changed through the Trump era and then through the extreme situation oh <laughs> of a pandemic in the Trump era? <laughs> right. So what I was talking about at the time I wrote the piece, which was about 2015, um, I, I was... You know, the, the two things that always trip me up about American culture, and just for context, I lived in Canada until I was 22, was born and raised there. So, you know, I've been in the United States for most of my adult life at this point, but I will never get used to the healthcare situation or gun culture. And, you know, um, the gun culture thing, I should say, it's very geographically specific. Something I love about New York City is that, like, guns are just not really a thing. Like, people don't own guns, as a matter of course. But, of course, that's not true in other parts of the country, including Michigan, where I traveled so much uh, around the time I wrote that piece. So, yeah, you know, my experience in Michigan is I saw a guy walk into the diner where I was eating lunch with a handgun in his belt. And because I wasn't raised in gun culture, my first thought was, we're all going to die. <laughs> you know, where it's, uh, that's actually a pretty normal occurrence in an open carry state, as Michigan is. So, yeah, that's a cultural sort of hiccup that I, that I used to run into all the time. Um, I think that 
the situation of living in the United States was really beautifully summed up by a fellow Canadian author, Omar Ellicott. And he wrote a wonderful novel a few years ago called American War, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's a great book. I interviewed him at a bookstore in Brooklyn, and we got to talking about the condition of being a Canadian living in the United States. And what we have in common is that we both feel incredible gratitude for the opportunities we've had in this country. You know, there is a lot of opportunity here. But what Omar said about it, he said, you know, the thing with the United States is there's no ceiling and there's no floor. And that just resonated with me so much. And I think it's something that's kind of been exposed to the world with the COVID situation, which is that, you know, there's just no floor here. Americans are kind of on their own in a way I feel that Canadians maybe aren't. You know, it's a much more, I guess, a much more individualistic society. Um, there's just a lot of kind of winging it and hustling and trying to get by. And that's just been so terribly exposed by the pandemic. And then I would say um, terribly exacerbated by the Trump administration, which very clearly has never had a plan. So, you know, the situation we're dealing with in New York City at the moment is schools are about to close because numbers are spiking. It would make more sense morally and epidemiologically to end indoor dining. But here's the thing. If you close the restaurants and people are out of work, it's not like there's a national plan to, you know, pay their rent for the next few months during another lockdown. So it's this terrible balancing act and it costs lives. You know, it's the situation here is so much worse than it needed to be in terms of the COVID mortality rate. I was speaking with a public health expert, and I think another kind of part of it, and, and as Canadians, you know, sometimes we just have to remind ourselves, you know, Canada has its challenges, but they can just never be at the scale of the United States. It's it's just a difference in population. That's a fact, right. right? And so, you know, you close down schools and all of a sudden like kids don't have breakfast. Um and 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 you know, and yes, that's a policy choice. So, you know, the experience is different in Canada. You can close schools and fewer children will or more children will still have options to access food because, you know, we've organized ourselves differently. But no matter what, it's just that scale is just so hard to comprehend as a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, so you were, uh, I wanted to talk to you um, about uh, if anyone has ever asked you to kind of opine on a pandemic, given that you wrote Station Eleven. There's, uh, there's another great Canadian, uh, uh, or another great book written by a Canadian um, called Songs for the End of the World, and and it too uh, follows um, a virus, and it's the virus uh, Aramis, and it's written by Salima uh, Nawaz, and the character Owen Grant, who is not a very likable character, <laughs> let me just say, uh, but but he wrote this book like that was about you know sort of how to survive a pandemic. And it was a work of fiction. And he finds himself in this world, you know, on CNN opining <laughs> about pandemics. And I thought that was really interesting. Right? It's like, oh, my God, I have to read that. That's been my life right. for the last six months. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I just wrote that down. Um, yeah, I get asked about pandemics a lot, <laughs> as you might imagine. Um, when I first started, so The Glass Hotel came out at the end of March. And for about a week, I was like, you know, I was telling my publicists, like, please tell them I don't want to talk about pandemics because 
I was really worried about giving the impression of profiting off of the pandemic, mm. like, you know, like using it to move units, which is pretty distasteful. But, you know, I, I held on to that stance for like six days and then it was just all anyone wanted to talk about and I surrendered and it's fine. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so the pandemic in Station 11 is not particularly scientifically plausible. You know, that's a flu with something like a 99% mortality rate that kills really quickly. And in reality, of course, an illness that deadly and that fast would burn itself out before it could really um, cause that much damage. So I think that the things that I didn't really expect about, about living through a real pandemic is, you know, in all my research about pandemics, it had never really occurred to me that there's kind of an in-between state. And what I mean by that is that I'd thought of pandemics as being kind of a moderate, sort of, sorry, a kind of a binary condition, like an on-off switch, like you're in a pandemic or not in a pandemic. And I really found myself kind of unprepared and flummoxed at the beginning of the pandemic. So, you know, from the middle of February onward, we kind of knew what was coming, but there was this weird kind of ambiguity about it. It's like, we were kind of in a pandemic, but kind of not. We were, you know, maybe stopped hugging our friends and we saw them, but we still took our kids to school and went grocery shopping in person, you know, that kind of thing. So there's this weird ambiguity that I hadn't really anticipated. And I felt it, more, again, kind of not quite at the other end of a pandemic, because now, of course, in New York City, we're going into the second wave. But over the summer, cases here were really low. Even through September, there were maybe 250 cases a day for a while, uh, very few deaths. So all of a sudden, it was very reasonable to continue to be in this kind of lockdown pod as I was with these three families. But it was also not unreasonable to send your kids to school, which a lot of my friends have done. So yeah, this, the weird kind of ambiguity was something that I wasn't prepared for. And then, you know, I think another thing that hadn't really occurred to me was was that a pandemic like this one with such a low mortality rate could cause such incredible upheaval and chaos. But, you know, in retrospect, the Georgia flu didn't need to have a 99% mortality rate. Like 10% would have done it. You know? So <laughs> that, was, uh, that was surprising to me. I wouldn't have anticipated that. Yeah, it's funny. I was remarking to my husband sort of at the start of the of the pandemic. So just like post lockdown, you know, people were like, oh, should we, you know, let, let's go out to eat. And I'm like, you know, it always reminds me when I was a kid, I would watch war movies and they would go to a restaurant and have dinner. I'm like, I was like, as a kid, I'd be like, people went to restaurants like during a war? Like really that happened? But it's kind of happening now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Except now it's crazier than during war. <laughs> war won't move silently from table to table in the restaurant. But uh, the pandemic absolutely will. Yeah, the, the attributes of um, COVID-19 are particularly insidious, right? Like it, it takes advantage like most viruses of our of our desire to be social and to gather. But, you know, because of the how long it takes for symptoms to onset, um, and the fact that there is a, um, a much smaller number of people who kind of remain asymptomatic, it's it's a much more covert actor than something like you know Ebola, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And the way that the early symptoms mimic the common cold is pretty insidious, I have to say. Yeah. Um, you know, we've shut down our pod three times because somebody had the sniffles. You know, you get a COVID test, wait a couple of days, you get cleared, you mingle again. And it's, uh, it's a little tra- traumatic every time. Um, and then also what makes risk management so difficult is just... You know, you could get a co- you could get COVID and have symptoms no worse than the common cold. That could be the whole thing, um, or you could die. Yeah. You know? So it's like it makes it really hard to to make any kind of a um, any kind of a determination about what risks are reasonable. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I wanted to ask about your tour for the Glass Hotel. You you mentioned earlier, you know that that the book was really was released kind of at the at, you know at a sort of tragic point, you know, of lockdown in, uh, in the pandemic, you called your tour for station 11, you know, the year of numbered rooms. Well, yeah. what, what would you call this, this tour? <laughs> um, the weeks of zoom calls. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, station 11 was 114 events in seven countries over a year and a half. It was epic. Um, and then actually I kept on doing paid lectures and onstage conversations for Station 11 under the umbrella of um, the Big Read program run by the National Endowment for the Arts down here. So I was still traveling for Station 11 right up until the pandemic. I canceled a lecture on March 12th. So yes, you know, I did so much traveling for Station 11. And for the Glass Hotel, I had a 25-city tour on the, on the calendar. It was going to be another sort of epic tour. But yeah, um, we we canceled most of the tour. My publicist and I, I guess like the second week of March, we we're like, okay, this just isn't happening. Let's cancel through the middle of April, which in retrospect, I don't know what we thought would, would be different by the middle of April, but you know, <laughs> no one knew anything. I was going to say, we so, all did. We all did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was just this process of dismantling this really complicated tour, um, kind of one country and one city at a time. So the way it played out was... For a period of, I want to say about three weeks or so, I would have these Zoom events almost every night and then interviews during the day. And I have to say, it was way less weird than I expected. Hmm. I thought it would be this kind of alienating, impersonal thing, you know, talking to people on my computer. But A, you can get used to anything. And B, it was actually really nice having that human connection during, you know, the most hardcore period of lockdown when I wasn't even really leaving my house in Terrace. And yeah, and I have to say also, you know, it's such a huge privilege to be able to tour, but that doesn't mean it's easy to be away from the people you love. So that was actually a silver lining of the pandemic was that instead of being out on the road for seven weeks away from my four-year-old, I got to put her to bed and then go to a Zoom call. And that was nice. Vincent's grandmother uh, gives her uh, a camera after her mother dies in a in a suspicious uh, drowning incident, and you know she says to her, and of course I'm paraphrasing, but that you know sometimes it's it's nice to use the camera lens to create a distance between yourself and the world. Uh, you know, I sometimes think Zoom is a little bit like that. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I like how in Zoom calls, you have this window into a person's home, but only the tidiest, most like together part of a person's home. Like the rest of it is probably total chaos. <laughs> yeah. You just get the Zoom back. Well, unless people wander in or your dog or. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those, those are some of my fun, you know, my most favorite kind of um, pandemic incidents when people, you know, share them on Twitter because they're just so human, right? Like, uh, the, the absolutely, yeah. Yeah, my daughter was crashing every single one of my events during my book tour, and I kind of loved it. It was really nice having her there. <laughs> it is right. It's like, and and it, yeah. and you're human, yeah. right? You're an author, but you're a mother, and yeah, exactly. We did have to make a rule though that um, she was only allowed to crash my events once per event because <laughs> I think she, yeah, she uh, crashed my Toronto Public Library event five times. It was after that. I was like, okay, we need to. <laughs> Tone this down a little bit. It's it's really bringing home that, you know, bring your whole, whole self to work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about borders. You know, um, you know, obviously, Station Eleven, you know, borders just become meaningless. Without, without enough population, nobody really cares to, to respect national borders. And obviously, you also need governments to really give them meaning. Um, but borders kind of disappear in Glass Hotel, too, because, you know, you talk about how there's these, you know, your, your characters kind of move through the, the kingdom of money, and, and that's not really a nation state, right? It's, uh, it's, it's right. just based on wealth. Yeah, exactly. Something of a state of mind. Yeah, my idea with a kingdom of money. So just to back up a little bit for some context, I was raised in a very working class environment. And to be clear, I have no complaints. I have a great family who loves books, but there was really no money. So, you know, I, I feel like that has meant a very different experience, especially I would say in early adulthood. Then people I know who've maybe come from much more financially stable backgrounds. So, you know, at this point, I feel like most of the people I know grew up middle class or upper middle class. And it seems to me that they have such different expectations or understandings of the way the world works and what they might expect of the world that it's almost like they're from a different country in a way that doesn't really have anything to do with the U.S.-Canada border. So I was thinking about that, the way that different socioeconomic strata can feel like completely different countries, just in terms of your experience of a place. And maybe one way to illustrate the kingdom of money, the idea of that, is um, is by anecdote. So last October, uh, a year ago, back in the sort of lost world when we got on airplanes, I, uh, I went out to Los Angeles for a couple of a couple of times for a screenwriting project. And because of my epic Station Eleven tour, I have an incredible number of miles on Delta Airlines. So a couple of times, I use those miles to upgrade to first class for the trip back from Los Angeles to New York. And what that meant in practical terms was that you know my flight would take off from LAX at 10.30 p.m. I would recline my seat to 180 degrees and pull up a down comforter and take a very pleasant nap. And then wake up as the plane was landing in New York City in the early morning. And there was something about the frictionlessness of that experience that made the distance kind of unconvincing. And I remember having this disorienting feeling like, you can't tell me that those are, you know, 3,000 miles apart. Like, come on, that was like the same kind of seamless thing. And I kind of thought of the experience of living with extreme wealth, of being like that, you know, that friction is just kind of removed in a way that I think would make you feel like you were moving through one continuous country, you know, whether it was London or New York or Dubai, just this sort of this world with a lot of comfort and beauty and ease. And certainly, you know, 
COVID-19, among other things, have shown, you know, I think has been a bit of another proof point for the kingdom of money. Um, yeah. You know, in some ways it's flabbergasting that Donald Trump, you know, survived no. COVID-19. A health friend of mine said, if he actually had it, <laughs> he, he wouldn't even accept no. He wouldn't even accept <laughs> right, it. Right, right. You know, the uh, the writer Damien Barr, um, he lives in Scotland, I believe, or he lives in, he lives in the UK, but he's from Scotland. He's an acquaintance of mine. He had this wonderful quote about it that went viral on Twitter. I'm going to paraphrase because I don't remember the exact wording, but it was something like, we're all in the same storm, but we're not all in the same boat. Some of us have luxury super yachts. Some of us just have the one oar. Which I think was a really elegant way of putting it, where, you know, on one end of the spectrum, there are single parents drowning between the, uh, you know, the demands of managing their child's Zoom education and suddenly having to become teachers and also doing their own full-time jobs from home. And it's just this impossible juggling act that a lot of people are doing. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people living in massive houses with live-in nannies and live-in tutors, and everything's very smooth. You know? So, yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely exacerbated those divides. Uh, a friend reminded me uh, to reread uh, the opening scene of The Tempest. Um, uh, because, right, it, there is obviously the, the shipwreck that, the, you know, leads to the encounter with Prospero, but the 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 whole discussion in that opening scene is you know about how to take care of the king and you know the different reactions of the sailors and i was like oh wow that I, i'd never thought of it that way but but it really kind of breathed new life uh, into that opening scene yeah yeah that's really interesting i'll have to look at that again yeah, yeah I, I did too i had to go like kind of go back and reread it and i was like oh wow okay yes <laughs> right right um in terms of um I have to ask this just just as a fan. Is there was there any part um, when you were writing the Glass Hotel? Did you think of it at all as a companion to Station Eleven? Um, I suppose it is in the sense that a couple of characters migrate from one book to the other. But I really see those books as taking place in uh, parallel universes. So I want people to read the Glass Hotel you know, secure in the assurance that the, uh, that the flu isn't coming. You know, it's not like the years right before the Station Eleven pandemic. It's kind of a different world. But yeah, you know, I think they might be interesting to read side by side because it is kind of, yeah, they're kind of different reflections on the same people. Well, the first time I read it, um, you know, I read it as, you know, I, or I approached it as nothing but a standalone book. It was a beautiful summer day here, and I curled up with it, and I just, you know, read it from, from beginning to end, and I was so delighted to see Miranda. Like, I felt kind of a sense of relief. I was like, oh, Miranda gets a better end. This is so good. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's nice to imagine uh, that alternate universe where it turns out okay for fictional characters. <laughs> um, and then to, in preparation for, for speaking with you today, um, I read both books again. And of course, you know, circumstance uh, drives our thinking so often. Uh, but it did strike me. It's like, yes, survival is insufficient. Um, it almost seemed like, you know, in some ways, Glass Hotel is a bit of a proof point for that. 
Right. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, in the Glass Hotel, Vincent's video habit, um, I don't know what else to call it. You know, she's this video artist who does these kind of impressionistic five-minute videos. It's kind of a, a, uh, an act that has to do with appreciating beauty. You know, I think, um, yeah, it heightens her experience of the world. And, you know, it was interesting. We were talking a moment ago about, you know, the way a fictional pandemic might or might not prepare a person for the real thing. Um, the, it has been really nice, I have to say, to see people turn into books during during a real pandemic. So, you know, I, I kind of thought of that that Star Trek line, survival is insufficient, when I started going to the website of my favorite independent bookstore, and there was a little note that said, due to the volume of orders, your shipment might be delayed. It was like, that's wonderful. <laughs> oh, good. I can, yeah, I'm glad I'm not the only one who's uh, turning to art at the moment. In, in a review of The Glass Hotel by Ruth Franklin, it, it appeared in, in The Atlantic. Um, she had this wonderful line. She was talking about all the different sort of uh, the, the primary universe that the characters occupy, but many of the characters kind of think about alternatives for, for themselves. And she wrote, uh, sometimes we choose to plunge into a different world and sometimes a different world chooses us. And I thought, that's that's pretty profound and and for sure for sure something I take away from Glass Hotel. And that's something I take away from our current moment in the pandemic. You know, I was just I was kind of thinking about this the other day. I was uh you know, I was out for a walk with my daughter. We're taking this epic hike to get to her favorite playground and you know, you have a lot of time to think on long walks. And what I was thinking about is that really up until the pandemic, I traveled all the time and it was just this life of airports and hotel rooms and meeting new people and delivering the lecture and going back to the hotel and back to the airport. And it just never occurred to me that that would end and that there would be a life where I barely leave my neighborhood. You know, and if I leave my neighborhood, it's usually on foot. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we, we've all been chosen by this strange new world that we wouldn't have imagined even nine months ago. Yes. And, you know, I think, you know, in many ways, you know, uh, just to bring the conversation back to to risk a little bit, I, I think that is the lesson of risk too. Like optimally, you actually choose the risks you take on. You you choose to be an artist. You choose to go skydiving. What, what whatever the, the, those risks may be, but of course we don't always get to choose the risks we encounter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But then, of course, you know the the sort of uh, the other side of that is. That you know, you choose the risks within this kind of broader framework of risk, where this is something I've been thinking about today because my daughter's nanny, who we share with another family, uh, she came down with cold symptoms 48 hours ago. And, you know, of course, that kind of brings up all of the risk, sort of the thinking about risk that we've been dealing with for months, where it's kind of risky to be in a pod with 11 people, which is the total number of children and adults who I associate with. But they're also kind of what's saving my sanity during the pandemic. So yeah, you know, making those calculations. Well, is it actually safe to be with any other people? And of course the answer is any number of other people, you know, it exponentially increases your risk, but you have to make that trade-off, you know, for your kid to be socialized and to retain some semblance of sanity in 2020. So, yeah, these are the equations we're all dealing with. Yeah. And she she, yeah, she tested negative, oh, by the way. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah we've been through a couple, uh, a couple of tests uh, ourselves. Uh, so I have uh, two kids 
And so, um, and, you know, we, we, uh, we have people who sometimes come into the house too. So, you know, it's, uh, it's the little micro decisions that, that I think are quite exhausting. So when people talk about pandemic fatigue, I, you know, and I think this is a lesson at risk too, trying to remember like, okay, well, what, what is our purpose? Our purpose in life isn't to not get COVID. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> our, our, our purpose is, is something else. And so that's why, you know, it, it, it can make sense to send your kids to school or, or join a pod. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so much depends on the individual where, you know, my daughter was really happy to be home with us when school ended, which kind of surprised me because she also loved school. But, you know, anecdotally, I've heard about other kids who were really not doing well, like their mental health was really suffering from being away from school. And if I had one of those kids, absolutely, I'd send her back. You know, um, I feel lucky that I didn't have to. Um, two pieces of art I, I often think about. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, and by the way, this caused me to kind of take a step back and reassess, but the movie that haunted me was The Others, uh, stars Nicole Kidman, you know, uh, it's a, it's a horror film, but, you know, uh, in the movie, her children suffer from a condition where, where they're allergic to sunlight. So she's, con- oh, yeah, yeah. right? So she's constantly, I was, just, I was just thinking of that movie. It's so great. <laughs> It's so great, but it's so haunting, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the constant closing and locking of the doors. And, you know, I just, uh, there was a point, you know, where I was, you know, scrubbing our doorknobs and I was like, okay, I, I just got to take a step back here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know. I know. And it becomes so claustrophobic in that movie, you know, the darkness and little pools of lamplight and closed doors and shut in rooms. And yeah, there's absolutely a parallel there to pandemic life, you know, especially at the beginning of the pandemic where we just didn't know that much about how it spread. So yeah, you know, you're saying that reminded me it's been months since I washed down the doorknobs with, uh, with alcohol, but that used to be a daily routine. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And then the other um, piece uh, that I often think about in a variety of contexts, and I won't be able to recall the whole poem, but the William Carlos Williams poem, so much depends on a red wheelbarrow. And there are so many red wheelbarrows and some of them have been taken away and yeah. some of them continue to be, you know, the fulcrum uh, that so much rests on. Yeah, Absolutely. Thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, about your books and for sharing your books with the world. Uh, I'm super grateful to have had this opportunity to speak with you, Emily. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it so much. Thanks for interviewing me.